Well, good morning, friendship. It is a privilege and honor to be with this body this morning. Um, I just wanted to note that each Sunday I'm, I'm reminded of the goodness of God as we're able to gather together as the family of God and, and what a privilege that is. Um, my name is Jason. For those of you that don't know me, if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you after the service. But today we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, if you could open up there with me. We'll have it up on the screen, but I think it's always good if, if we have things right in front of us as well. Um, and while you're doing that, I just want to note that this morning I want to look at one of the most important texts in all of Scripture for our walks with Christ. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 today as Paul actually unpacks the Christian life and the weight of what Christ has done for us, and thus how that should impact our lives as Christians. But before we begin, I want to give us a quick little overview of Romans up to this point, because we're jumping in at Romans 6, and Paul gives a lot of content before that. Um, And so I I put an outline up for us here that just kind of gives us a good idea. But in the preceding chapters, um, this is kind of how he really gets to his main points. The first one, chapter 1, deals with man standing before God as sinners. Romans 2 looks at God's righteous judgment on man as a result of sin. Romans 3 looks at Christ's sacrifice for the salvation of sinners and the upholding of God's righteousness. Romans 4 deals with how faith is, is how Christ's sacrifice is actually applied to us for our salvation. And then Romans 5, the message is that through faith in Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ. And then I put a quick note, really a, a simple way to break it down. Chapters 1 and 2 in Romans deal with man's need to be saved. Chapters 3 through 5 deal with how God saves us, which is referring to our justification And then chapters 6 through 8 deal with how we live after our sanctification, meaning the doctrine of sanctification. So all these chapters set the stage for where we are in Romans 6. And, uh, you know, Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says that Christ died for the ungodly. He also says in Romans 5.10 that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So the picture that we're seeing all throughout Romans is one of substitution, meaning Christ literally died in the place of sinners. Paul even shows later in chapter 5 that there's precedent for one man's actions to be attributed to all of mankind when he brings up Adam's sin in the garden and how, how so as Adam fell in the garden, his sin therefore carries to everybody that came after Adam. And then he demonstrates in verse 9 of chapter 5 that as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, referring to Christ, the many will be made righteous. And so this is going to set the stage for where we are today in chapter 6. And Paul's words here in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 6 are actually an argument to any objections that might come because of what he's just said in chapter 5. Because he's just said that mankind is incapable of having any inherent righteousness in ourselves, but that instead we're totally dependent on the righteousness of Christ being accounted to us. So Paul's anticipating that naysayers will come along and they'll balk at this by suggesting that this type of doctrine is so radical that the end result will only be a life of sin because righteousness has already been attained for us. In fact, he even goes so far in Romans 5.20 where he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he knows that as a result of just the, the sheer audacity of what he's just stated, that some people will look at that and say, well, if it's all of grace and Christ just obeyed for me, 
then I guess I can just do whatever I want. And so that's going to bring us where we are today in Romans chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read his argument against this, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So today I want to look at three truths that Paul states, and then three points of application. Paul begins with his thesis statement, verses 1 and 2, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And then catch what he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And these verses are going to set the tone for Paul's explanation of sanctification in the coming verses. If you don't know what sanctification means, it just means the process by which the Christian becomes more like Christ. It's dealing with our pursuit of holiness. So this text is primarily looking at the Christian life and what it should look like when we realize what Christ has done for us. So Paul's main argument that I want to show today is that a proper understanding of justification is the fuel of our sanctification. And it's crucial for us to see this. So all that said, let's go ahead and start with truth number one. Truth number one is we have died with Christ. Look back at verse two. It says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We've briefly discussed that Christ died for sinners, as Paul stated in chapter 5. But the question then becomes, what does that actually mean? Well, it means this. So the Bible is clear that before a holy God, all men stand condemned before God as sinners. God is completely holy, and thus he must punish sin. His justice demands it. And because we are all sinners before him, God cannot just overlook our sin. So think of this in our own legal system, right? If you're standing in a court and you see a murderer on trial with every ounce of evidence weighing against him with a clear guilty verdict deserved, and the judge declared that man to be not guilty, we would all be in an outcry. Why? Because it's an abuse of justice. And so even as sinful humans, we know this to be true. How much more for the God who is the standard of holiness? Listen to what Proverbs seventeen fifteen says. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So we see clearly that God's righteousness and justice must be upheld in punishing sinners. 
At the same time, God loves sinners, right? So what is God's response to this dilemma? John 3.16, most of us are familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we've established that Christ died for us. He stood in our place and took on the righteous wrath of God towards sinners. He died a substitutionary death. This is the essence of the gospel in our justification. But we often speak of this in terms of like a vague, almost impersonal dying for sinners. But what Paul's actually getting at here is something even more incredible. Christ died for us, but for those who are in Christ, we actually died with Christ as well. Look at what he says in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, how can this be the case, right? Because first and foremost, I'm a sinner who deserves God's righteous punishment. So what good would my death accomplish? And secondly, I wasn't there with Christ dying on the cross 2,000 years ago, right? So how could I have died to sin? And this is where we truly begin to see the beauty of what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what does this mean? Well, catch what Paul's saying. He's saying that when we came to faith in Christ, his substitutionary death was applied to us in such a way that we have literally been baptized or immersed, might be a better word, into his death. Now, and quickly, I, I want to kind of step aside, and I want to make sure I mention this, because some people have taken these verses to mean that Paul's saying that we're actually saved by a physical baptism into water, but that's clearly not what Paul is saying. We know in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, we have been justified by faith. So not baptism. A few verses later in chapter 5, it says that we were justified by his blood and were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So then we come now to chapter 6, and Paul's not going to contradict what he's just said, and he says we have been baptized into his death. So clearly when he uses the word baptism, he's using it for its natural usage, which means to immerse. And so think of it like the phrase, so-and-so has been immersed in his work lately. And so it's the same picture we have here that we as Christians have been immersed or plunged into the work of Christ in such a way that we are literally in Christ. So the Bible makes clear that it's Christ's work that saves us and it's faith in him that applies his finished work to us. Water baptism is the picture of this reality. And this is one of the great doctrines of the Bible. Christian, you are in union With Christ. You've been immersed into Christ. John Calvin actually called this the mystical union. It's a mystery. We can have a a limited understanding here on earth, but it's one of the greatest things that we see in Scripture. It's the heart of justification. It can be really easy for us to get caught up in the decision to follow Christ that we miss the wonder of what salvation truly is, and that's union with or identification with Christ. And Paul speaks it this way throughout his letters. Listen to some of the things he says. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, in the fa- I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3.3. 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And lastly, Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
Did you know that Paul references union with Christ about 200 times in his letters? About 40 of which are in Ephesians alone. There's a New Testament scholar, his name's Constantine Campbell, and he says, quote, every Pauline theme and pastoral concern coheres with the whole through their common bond, union with Christ. So every Pauline theme, all the themes in Paul's letters, every pastoral concern, it all comes back to this, union with Christ. So do you see how big this is? Do you see what's happening here? The wonder that, that, that the word of God is noting. Do you see why Paul emphasizes this constantly? Because salvation is that Christ has come to live the perfect life in our place, die the death that we deserve to die in our place, and then he rose again victoriously from the grave in our place. It's called the doctrine of imputation. It just means that Christ's righteousness and his uh, substitutionary death is actually accounted to or credited to us as Christians. And it is our only hope of salvation before a holy God. This is what theologians often call the great exchange because at the cross, we lay down our sin and we pick up Christ's righteousness and Christ is laying down his righteousness for us to pick up and he's picking up our sin. What a deal, (laughs) what a deal. This is what Paul is saying in verse five. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christian, we can have absolute confidence in the security of our salvation because Christ not only died for our sins and in our place, but because he rose victoriously from the dead. Because we were united with him in his death, we are also united with him in the victory through the resurrection. Because he lives, we now live in Christ. So Paul is able to say that we have died with Christ because Christ died in our place. And as a result, we died with him. In the same way, Christ rose again to life, and so we live because he lives. This is union with Christ, and it is a sweet doctrine. Do we see the beauty of this? Do we sit in awe over the fact that in Christ we have been granted everything? I know that's a bold statement. Listen to what John Piper's definition of union with Christ is. He says, quote, everything in Christ that can be shared with me is shared with me. That's an unbelievable statement. It means that outside of his deity, he shares it all with us in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption. We have holiness. We have no condemnation, Romans 8.1 says. We have now been called children of God. All of this is owed to Christ and nothing due to ourselves. And praise him because he's granted it to us and it changes everything. It changes the way that we live, changes the way that we give, changes the way that we raise our children, everything changes the way that we live our Christian life. Keep your eyes on what Christ has done for you and it will transform the way you live. Truth number two, we have freedom in Christ. Verses six and seven, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul says that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. God's word makes clear that any and all who are not in Christ are slaves to sin. Listen to these verses. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul's point here is that for the Christian, our lives were once marked by slavery to sin, completely helpless and hopeless. 
Again, Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 17 demonstrates this truth. When Paul says that because of Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man and led to condemnation for all men. But thanks be to God that the verse doesn't end there and it continues. He says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul contrasts our old self with our new lives in Christ. Our old self is referring to the state that we were in before being transformed by faith. So thus, while our old self was enslaved to sin and at enmity with God, the life that we now live in Christ is one of freedom and peace with God. And I wanted to note this, that our freedom from sin is total. We are free from the penalty of sin. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're also free from the power of sin is what we're seeing in this chapter, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, Romans 6.6. 6. And then lastly, Christ has purchased for us freedom from the presence of sin. Romans 8.30 says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Christian, take heart in the fact that there is coming a day where we will be reunited with our Savior in heaven, and there will be absolutely no trace or presence of sin, and it will be a glorious day. We can have total confidence that those whom he justifies, he has guaranteed their sanctification. Why? Because we are secured in Christ. Our freedom is grounded in the fact that we have died with Christ. I had a professor at uh, Dallas Baptist University who I thought gave a really helpful analogy on this. He kind of correlated uh, Romans 6 and 7 and kind of the, 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 the chapters dealing with this type of theme to uh, back to the Civil War where President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And what he looked at was the fact that uh, President Lincoln issued the announcement, and so the announcement freed all of the slaves in the southern states. That's what the Emancipation Proclamation was. Now, we also know from history that even though that announcement was made, many slave owners did not actually tell their slaves that they were free. So just think about this. For the slaves that were in the southern states but did not actually hear of the proclamation, they were technically freed from slavery, but they were still living as slaves. They were not aware of the freedom that had been granted to them, and their lives reflected that. Their freedom was real, but it was not realized. In a much bigger way, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. We need to live in light of this proclamation. It should change the way that we live our lives. Paul's point is the same. A Christian who understands what has been done for him will live in light of this truth. You have freedom in Christ if you are a Christian. So live in this freedom. Now, how do we know that our freedom is permanent? That brings us to truth number three. Christ reigns eternally. Look at verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, that the life, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This is what gives us total confidence to live. Christ will never die again. He lives victoriously forever. Listen to these verses. Revelation 1.8, Christ says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Our God has conquered death. He's achieved victory forevermore, and as Christians, we get to take part in that victory, not because of anything in us, but simply because of our union with Christ. 
meaning everything that belongs to him belongs to us. And thanks be to God that he reigns and rules and he has included us in that victory. We are not deserving of it, but solely because Christ came for us, he's included us in it. So this is gonna wrap up our truth section. And um, really quickly, I I just wanna give us three practical points as a result of these truths. Uh, One quick note that I think is important to note on this is that this passage follows a common theme in Paul's letters. Now, I know many of us in this room probably don't like grammar and syntax and all that good stuff, but it's super important when it comes to biblical interpretation. And so in this text, as usual, Paul lists the indicatives first. So meaning he's stating the facts of what have, what, what's already occurred. The indicatives come first, and then after that comes the imperative. Imperative just meaning the commands. Okay, And this is really important for us to understand because it separates Christianity from every other religion. Our standing in Christ is not based on our obedience. It's because of the work of Christ applied to us through faith. And thus, the imperative or the command comes to us as a result of our salvation, not the cause of it. Verses 1 and 10 in this text deal with the indicatives, the reality of what Christ has actually done for us. And now we're going to get to the imperatives, the commands. So application number one, walk in freedom and victory over sin. Christ has secured it. Verses 11 and 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So he starts the saying with so, meaning on the basis of. So therefore we can substitute because of this, meaning all that we've just said in the prior verses, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this means that life today is secured by the death and resurrection of Christ and my union with it. That's going to bring us to verse 12 where he says, Let not sin therefore reign. And Paul knows the nature of mankind because he wrote about it, right? He knows that apart from Christ we are slaves to sin. So if this command came first before the indicative, we would be hopeless. But thanks be to God that through the death of Christ, we have died to sin as well. And therefore, sin should, have, should not reign over us. So Christian, walk in freedom and victory over sin. Walk in it. You do not have to obey its various passions anymore. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Walk in victory. Our lives should demonstrate the reality of our freedom. Application number two, live in the identity that Christ has given you. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Don't miss this because it's so good. Paul gives another command here. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God, catch this, as those who have been brought from death to life. Again, look at the verb tenses here. You have been brought. Christ has already brought you from death to life. Colossians 1.13 says the same thing. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Verb tenses are very important in the Bible. And what we're seeing here is it's all past tense. It has already occurred. So live in the reality of the truth. I keep harping on this, but I really think it's so important for us to understand that this is why the command of sanctification is not a crushing reality for the Christian. 
because we've already been declared holy on the basis of Christ. We're not working for God's approval. We already have that in Christ because we are in union with him. We work from that reality rather than for it. So the reason that we are now enabled to present our members for righteousness is because we have been brought from death to life by the righteous one. Those who are enslaved to sin could not present their members for righteousness. But we're no longer enslaved to sin, so now we can and should live for righteousness. Point number three, sin has no dominion over you. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. If you are in Christ, realize this glorious truth. You are not a slave to sin. Tell that to yourself. Preach that truth to yourself every single day. You are not a slave to sin if you're in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're in this room and perhaps you've been struggling with a particular sin. It's just been beating you down over and over and over again. And my prayer is that you would let this text marinate in your heart to the point to where you see that Christ has already secured your victory for you. We fight from victory, not for it. The best way to fight sin in our lives is to look to Christ, the one who's already conquered it for us. See his beauty and don't settle for lesser pleasures. His victory is our victory. We're under grace. Walk in confidence because your standing before him is due to your union with him. Paul makes clear in the verses after this section, as we're going to see, we won't get to them today, but slaves to righteousness is actually the, the, the phrase that Paul uses. And so what we see is that this doctrine does not lead us into more sin, but rather it empowers us to fight, to fight our sin because we are aware of the victory in Christ. And then one last thing I want to note about this. It's so important for us to realize, Christian, you never move past the gospel, Is it not incredible that in Paul's laying out of the doctrine of sanctification, he spends the majority of his time dealing with a look at our justification? It's because the understanding of what occurs in our justification is ultimately the fuel that propels us for our sanctification. We don't move past the gospel. Not only is it the message that saves us, but it's also the message that spurs us on in our pursuit of holiness. Many of you know that I work in insurance, um, and so as such, we get to often hear about some interesting claims that can occur. Um, recently, we had a customer in our agency that was filling up his vehicle at a gas station and doing perhaps what many of us do, where you just kind of robotically and subconsciously go through the motions, and you just don't really think about what you're doing. Well, he finished filling up, he got in his vehicle, and he didn't make it very far. His engine had uh, basically died. As it turns out, he had put the wrong kind of fuel into his vehicle and it destroyed the engine. Brothers and sisters, in a much greater way, if we approach the Christian life without truly understanding what Christ has done for us, our engine will continually have issues. Remember, a proper understanding of justification is the fuel for our sanctification. If we mess up that message, our lives will show it. If you remember earlier in this sermon, I quoted Proverbs 17, 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Do you see the scandal of the gospel in those verses? On the basis of Christ, we, the wicked, have been justified. And Christ, the righteous, took on our condemnation for us. God, the Son, has come to bring us to himself. In Christ alone we stand. We just sang those words. He is our only hope. It's the awe of this message that leads us to obedience in our lives.
Lastly, Hebrews 12 calls us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And it tells us how to do so. The author says to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, church, let's eagerly look to Christ and what he's done for us, uniting himself to us, and run the Christian race with endurance because he reigns. His victory is our victory. If you're in this room today, my prayer is that God's word has been an encouragement to you. If you're in Christ, my hope is that this would cause us to give glory to Christ for our justification and then also to have a fresh reminder of the power that this brings in our lives today. And if you're not in Christ, I would urge you this morning to die with Christ and in return pick up his life. If you're not in Christ, you are a slave to sin and Christ came to set set sinners free. You too can be in union with Christ by placing your faith in him and in so doing, You lay down your dirty rags of sin, and in return, you receive the beautiful righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Um, Thank you for our church. Thank you for just every person in this room, Lord God. I pray that we would honor you in the way that we go about our lives, Lord God, that you would receive all the glory as you deserve it for our justification. You've purchased our sanctification, God, and so I pray that that would spur us on to obedience for you and to seeing your beauty and being captivated by it. It's your name I pray, amen.